John, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of John this morning, John chapter 4. And I'll explain why we've jumped out of Colossians for a couple of weeks uh, as we uh, get into the sermon a little bit. John's Gospel, chapter 4. We pick things up in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, and John writes by the Spirit. He said, Therefore, when the Lord, that is Jesus, knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John the Baptist, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, then he left Judea and he departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his uh, son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about noon, the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us uh, the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you are now uh, living with uh, is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth." And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. Uh, When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at that point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Uh, Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
And then they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you, uh, do, uh, you not say that there are still four months and then come the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word this morning. We thank you that you give us the promise that uh, you not only bless us with your word, but that it will not return void, that it will accomplish your purposes in our lives. And we submit ourselves to the truth that is found in these verses, even before we explore them in our study of it. And Lord, we count ourselves thankful for every way in which our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength might become more like Christ and be used to love you and to serve you in an even greater measure in this needy world. And we pray, Lord, that you would open your word up to it, speak it into our spirit and our life, our relationship with you, and that you would do it by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week in our study uh, through the book of Colossians, we examined uh, Paul's statement to the church there and to us as well concerning uh, the broad diversity of mankind that uh, is represented in the body of Christ and represented in any local church and how that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And Paul is declaring that as a Christian, as someone who is born again by the Holy Spirit, someone who is being conformed into Jesus' image by that same Holy Spirit, that we are not to bring all of our fleshly, all of our worldly, all of our carnal pre-salvation prejudices concerning uh, race and nationality and ethnicity and social class and religious heritage uh, or sexism into our Christian life or into the body of Christ as a whole because all of those things are completely uh, contradictory to Jesus himself and, uh, and because Christ is, uh, is all and is in us all. In the body of Christ, all of these human carnal distinctions are overruled by the fact that uh, Christ is all and that He is in all in our lives as Christians. That Bible passage deals solely with how we are to view uh, diversity within the body of Christ. Uh, Christian to Christian as members of uh, the kingdom of God. And so as a result, I limited this discussion in terms of of prejudice to, uh, uh, to the kingdom of God, to Christians, to the local uh, church. But given the level of racial and class unrest in our nation today, I knew that 
this would probably need to be a two-part series, and indeed it'll become a three-part series, in order to give a fuller picture of what the Bible says to us uh, as Christians about this kind of prejudice. And then to uh, answer the question that I would have posed to myself last week if I had listened to that uh, uh, sermon uh, alone. And uh, maybe you thought of it yourself, or you might have said, well, great, uh, 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 that, uh, but uh, I understand now how, how I am to handle these issues in terms of Christian to Christian, uh, but how am I as a Christian to view racism and class warfare in my interactions with the world, with the unsaved world? Uh, with non-Christians, and how am I to conduct myself in the midst of a very, very racially charged nation uh, in world, in order that I might be a kingdom influence, in order that I might be a redemptive influence for God in the midst of it. And only Christians have an answer. Only Christ is the answer to these uh, problems that exist Within, within our culture. And that's what I want to address here uh, this morning. And I don't know of any better place to try and answer that question than to uh, look at Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria here in John chapter uh, 4. And let me say at the outset that my intention is not to be exhaustive in terms of what the Bible has to say about these issues. That would take many, many Sundays uh, in order to accomplish. But I simply want to make some observations from the life of Jesus that I think uh, can be helpful to us, can be edifying to us, uh, and, and uh, as we endeavor to not only navigate the current racial and societal uh, climate, but to uh, actually be spiritually influential in it and to uh, properly represent the Lord uh, as a Christian. Much of what I will say uh, is uh, obvious. Much of what I'll say will be obvious to uh, many of you, and so forgive me for stating the obvious. It's a gift that I have. But I, I think that the times warrant the reminder uh, it's, it is a very, very dangerous game for anyone, and especially political leaders, uh, to stoke the flames of uh, racial or class warfare in a nation, and to pit one group against another, and uh, as has been going on now uh, for years at the highest levels of government in uh, the United States, and, and to do so for the purpose of gaining political power or maintaining political power. And today there is not only the open use of race in order to do this, but also the open use of classism and attempt to provoke an envy and a resentment among the poor and the middle class uh, against the rich or the upper class. Uh, even when there is no demonstrable evidence that the wealth has been generated at the expense of the poor, uh, and then to uh, pit one class against the other as if all poor and middle class people are uniformly virtuous, 
and as if all rich people are uniformly uh, villainous. And it makes you wonder uh, if these people know anything about human history and how indescribably dangerous it is for the leaders of a nation to stoke and inflame the basest emotions in human beings, the most carnal and dangerous emotions in uh, uh, human beings, and uh, uh, envy and resentment and the danger of marginalizing a particular group in the eyes of the rest of the nation Uh, cast them as an enemy to the rest of the nation and then call for them to be brought down. And when I look at the world that we live in, more particularly when I look at the insanity of the country that I live in, I wonder to myself, has everyone forgotten the history of the Jews? in Nazi Germany living up, leading up to World War II and how the government marginalized them, cast them as the enemy of uh, the, the uh, majority population uh, of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the nation of, of Germany and what became of the Jews not only in Germany but in uh, Europe as a result uh, of it or the history of Stalinist Russia, the communist revolution in China, the deeds of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Is anybody reading anymore in the United States of America in terms of the danger of promoting this kind of tribalism in a country that is, uh, is most vulnerable to it given the fact that we are a melting pot of the entire uh, world. And while we are nowhere near, of course, presently, uh, these examples that I've given us, it reminds us that to play the, with these kind of things is a very dangerous game because historically, you can lose control of it very, very quickly. And that demon is very hard to stuff back into that bottle uh, once you let uh, him out. And what various politicians and activist groups have done today is, uh, is awful in marginalizing police officers, our law enforcement officers, painting them as public enemies before the nation as a whole, and uh, an assessment that is believed by far too many citizens in our country. And it is, it is this marginalization presently that is the most dangerous of all. It is hard to believe that as recently as uh, February, in March in the United States of America, when COVID-19, we're talking about six months ago, when COVID-19 hit this nation, hit the world uh, as it did, and, uh, and it created such fear, and then how along with all of the frontline health workers uh, at, at that time, uh, our law enforcement with them were viewed as heroes. 
And yet three months later, two months later, all the way into uh, this very hour, how quickly that, that perception of them uh, has changed in the minds of many. And the Bible teaches that they are God's servants in maintaining law and order and that we are to honor them and to respect them in that position. And it doesn't mean that they aren't going to make mistakes uh, or that we shouldn't, uh, there shouldn't be a mechanism to identify bad police officers and remove them from a police uh, force. But we should never confl conflate the exception to be the rule and judge all law, law enforcement officers to be bad when a very small percentage of them uh, actually are. And it isn't just the United States of America where this kind of prejudice, this kind of classism and racism, and there are many other isms as, as well that are in play uh, today, where this is prominent, it's prevalent, it's not viewed as a danger, it's viewed as a weapon uh, for uh, gaining power and, and wealth and other means. It isn't just our country. Prejudice fills our entire world. You go to any nation in the world that consists almost entirely of one race, whatever that race might be, or of one ethnicity, and it will find a way to discriminate on the base of something else, on the basis of clan, on the basis of tribe or family, or on the basis of name or uh, income or education or class or language or some uh, minority population of some kind. And the reason that it exists uniformly in the world is because it is in us as people. It is in our fallen natures from that fall uh, of Adam and Eve. And it's important to realize, I think, that uh, the time of this event that we read about here in John chapter 4, that at the time of these events where, uh, that describe Jesus' activity there, that Samaria was a very, very racially charged environment in place. At the time, Israel was divided into three principal regions. There was Galilee in the north, and there was Judea in the south, and there was Samaria at the center of the nation. And, uh, uh, and to, it, it takes a moment here, and I'd like to do just that for understanding. It's important to understand the context of, of the passage here to even begin to understand it or to glean anything uh, uh, from it and to understand the degree of racial, racial strife that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the racial strife that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, it began when Assyria defeated the northern kingdom of Israel in 721. It began in 721 B.C. And as was the custom of the Assyrians, when they conquered a, a foreign people, they displaced the native population. So they took all of the Jews, of, or, or virtually all of the Jews, 
of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they sent them to other parts of the Assyrian Empire, and then they brought other displaced members of the Assyrian Empire and brought them then into Israel. It was their means of destabilizing these nations so they would be less likely to rebel against uh, the Assyrian uh, rule, so they could easier to maintain control. And so these foreigners that came in, that had been brought in by the Assyrians, uh, they came into Israel, they intermarried with the remnant of the Jews uh, that had been allowed to remain in Israel, and what was produced from this union uh, were the Samaritans, uh, a race of people uh, that the exiled Jews did not consider to be pure Jews. And these foreigners, these Samaritans, added uh, insult to injury when they uh, took the worship of Jehovah, they mixed into it the worship of, of the God of the Bible, uh, all of the idolatrous practices they, they brought from all of the lands, their native lands, and, uh, and they brought them uh, 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 there and, and began to mix them into Judaism. And when the Jews ultimately returned from their Babylonian captivity, uh, they discovered that the Samaritans had no intention of leaving uh, Israel. Uh, they liked it there. No intention of returning to uh, their native lands. And then worse yet, the Samaritans now claim to have a relationship with one of the three great patriarchs uh, of Jewish history, the patriarch Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fame. And, and they did so because the center of their life was at the piece of land that Jacob had allotted to his favorite son, uh, Joseph. And thus Mount Gerizim became their center of worship, not Jerusalem. And as a result of all of this, the Jews hated this group of people that were known as uh, the Samaritans. They hated them for what they were nationally. They were foreigners. They hated them for what they were racially. They were not pure Jews. And, uh, and yet they were claiming uh, racial equality. They hated them for what they were spiritually, for their idolatry, for their heresy. And they considered the Samaritans to be nothing more than this foreign kind of Johnny-come-lately idolatrous spiritual physical half-breeds who now possessed their land, the land that had been given to them uh, by God, to the Jews by God. And as I mentioned last week, so great was uh, the, the Jews' hatred of the Samaritans that when they would travel from the south to the north or the north to the south, they would not pass through the land of Samaria because they didn't even want the dust of the Samaritans on their sandals. So they would make the long journey over to the Jordan River, cross over onto the east side of the Jordan River, and then walk down to the south, south or the north, and then cross over in non-Samaritan land. It essentially doubled the length of the journey and took it from being three days on foot to six days on foot, but they were willing to do it. 
so deeply ingrained was their animosity toward the Samaritans. Now, because the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans, as is the case with all persecuted people, uh, they hated the Jews uh, just as uh, passionately until by the time of Jesus, all of this had been going on in Samaria for over 700 years. And actively, uh, in, in terms of in, intense hostility, for 450 years. And as one generation after another of both Jews and Samaritans entrenched themselves more and more firmly in their national and racial and religious prejudice uh, and their hatred of one another until these two groups of people had no dealings with one another. And essentially they became two peoples who hated each other intensely, but who were now, uh, by life circumstances, forced them to live with one another in the same land. And again, as I mentioned last week, all of this neatly encapsulated in the Samaritan woman, woman's response to Jesus when he asked for uh, a drink of water there in verse 9. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And she is genuinely uh, floored. She is genuinely flabbergasted at, that Jesus would talk to her uh, as a Samaritan, as a woman, and that he would request something of her, uh, making himself uh, vulnerable to her refusal and then indebted to her in some small way if she honored his, uh, his, his uh, uh, request and that he would even drink from her vessel uh, at all. And again, all of this reflected in John's single-sentence commentary and explanation for all of it in verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's the scene. That's Samaria. At the time of, uh, of, of Jesus' life and in, in ministry, earthly ministry. And so what did Jesus do in light of all of these, what are, were by then centuries old, deeply entrenched, generational, racial, and national hatred and prejudice. He brushed them all aside, and he deliberately walked straight into Samaria. He deliberately walked right into the middle of, of all of that uh, prejudicial mess. And he didn't walk in there alone. He brought his very Jewish, very nationalistic, very racially proud, uh, very religiously proud, very sexist, and very prejudiced disciples with him, which was the whole point. It wasn't about Jesus, it was about them. And, as it, and he brought them there as a teachable moment in order to show them how God views and viewed the Samaritan people. And then number two, to teach them about what it means to be an ambassador for Christ in a world that is absolutely full of this kind of thing. Uh, long, long histories of racial and national and religious hatred and 
prejudice. And we know this to be the condition of the disciples, that they were completely infected by the prevailing prejudices uh, of their time by virtue of the two questions that they wanted to ask but did not ask when they returned to Jesus from going to get food uh, within the city. And they returned to Jesus and the woman at the well and uh, the questions that they wanted to ask uh, are, are, are found there in, uh, in uh, verse, uh, let me see here. In verse 27, and to the woman they wanted to say, what do you seek? And they wanted to use that question just to shoo her away like a stray dog. That's how you treated Samaritans. And of Jesus, they wanted to ask him the question, why are you talking with her? And they wanted to rebuke him. And, and the idea is, what in the world are you doing? You can't do this kind of thing. As a Jewish man, you cannot talk to a Samaritan. You can't have dealings with a Samaritan. And certainly, as a Jewish rabbi, you can't do that. And if you think you're going to get any kind of traction in Israel in terms of your message and who you are and uh, uh, without honoring the restrictions and the prejudices of this age-old and ages-old hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, it's not going to work for you. And here they look at him and they're intent on hearing all of this uh, to, to correct him. You've got to stop this if you have any hope of being considered spiritual by, by other Jews. And they're missing the point completely. They thought this was a teachable moment for Jesus and not for them. And that Jesus was the one that was in need of the instruction and the change and not them. And so they're intent upon conforming Jesus into their image in this environment rather than the other way around. And I think that this shows us that racism can be something that is present even in the most uh, spiritual of Christians. And that even the most spiritual of Christians, uh, this is something that... All of us have to stay uh, alert to in our lives, that we can fall prey to it. We certainly think of the Old Testament uh, prophet Jonah. He hated the Assyrians so much that he longed for their complete destruction. Lock, stock, and barrel. Men, women, children, I don't care what their age. Destroy them, God. He didn't want to destroy them with his own hand. He wanted God to destroy them. And he didn't want to take a message of repentance that would take them off of the bad boy list on God's eyes because he knew that if they repented, God would be so gracious as to uh, 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 pull back the judgment that, was, that they were due because of their actions. The, the Assyrians, at, at that time, they were monsters in the ancient world. God bless you if you're Assyrian today. We know uh, you're not skinning people alive and uh, chopping off their heads and piling them at the city gates anymore. And uh, which is, uh, you know, the Scottish and the Irish weren't far from that. So I can't, we, it, it's a messy history for all of us. I'm Scottish and Irish, if you don't know. And, and so he just wanted them dead. How the Assyrians had treated the Jews, it was unforgivable in his mind. And uh, the only thing that, that they were due was uh, uh, destruction. But the lesson of... Uh, 
the whole lesson of the book of Jonah was to reveal that uh, uh, despite uh, uh, being a child of God and despite being a, uh, a prophet uh, of God, uh, that Jonah was completely out of touch with the heart of God in this issue. And even, uh, uh, even James and John, the sons of thunder, who are present in the midst of all that we're looking at here in John chapter 4, later on even, after this lesson has been taught to them, uh, later on, uh, the, they as the sons of thunder were going to ask Jesus for permission to call down fire from heaven in order to judge these very uh, uh, same Samaritans for slighting Jesus in the, the area of hospitality. And, and so here you have someone that, okay, Jesus has told me, the Bible has told me that I'm not to be prejudiced towards these people. And then so we at least have that going on in our noggins. We're trying to grow in that. And then what happens to the disciples as soon as that same group of people mistreat them one time, they move all the way back, lock, stock, and barrel, into their former prejudices. And it's a danger. It's a danger for a child of God. And, and it, requires, uh, it, it requires alertness on our part. Jesus responded to James and John when they wanted to, you know, fry the whole village for not giving them a room. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then they went on to... Uh, another village. And again, teaching us that this kind of ungodly prejudice is something that we will have to stay alert to in our own lives uh, all the way until the day we enter into heaven. Uh, whether it has to do with race or some other ism that is a part of our background or our culture or the culture of the world in which we live. I want us to notice a few things in this passage. We'll only notice one this morning. Uh, but things that we learn uh, about Jesus in this regard uh, from this passage. And I want you to notice that Jesus refused to honor or he refused to be uh, conformed to the prevailing fleshly prejudices of the day. And the realization that in order to be like Christ, in order to represent Him in this world, we're to do the same. And again, the prevailing uh, view, Samaria was a place to be avoided by Jews, and Samaria, Samaritan people were to be completely avoided uh, as well. In fact, uh, again, not only to be avoided, but that there should be no dealings with them at all. But Jesus disregarded the prejudices of his day and he set his focus on the work that God had called him to uh, do in order to reach an entire world with the gospel and with the love and the truth of uh, the gospel. And Jesus does this with the recognition, a biblical recognition of how to view mankind in the way that God views mankind for all of our messiness. And that is that every human being has been created by God. And every human being uh, originally created in the image of God. It makes us unique in all of, uh, all of creation. That every human being is a descendant 
of the same parents, the same Adam and Eve, that we all share the same origin and that fundamentally we are all alike, that fundamentally we are all a part of one race and it is the human race. Now I know today in the current climate it is considered racist for somebody to say that all races are a part of one race, the human race, because it's viewed as marginalizing uh, a, 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 a particular race related to that. But there's no intent related to that at all. We will not make any kind of progress at all unless we view people across all of the broad uh, uh, differences of mankind uh, to view human beings that we are all one race. You want a blood transfusion? You, get, can get a re- you can get a blood transfusion if it's your blood type from a person of any race in the world. Our innards are identical. We all come from that same uh, Adam and Eve and that every person is equally loved by God. Jesus operated under that understanding and that every person has been created uh, for a relationship with God. And that every person needs to hear the gospel, God's offer of salvation, and in order to be saved and to enter into the relationship with God that they've been uh, created for, In other words, here Jesus viewed people biblically above everything else that was going on around him. And he viewed people uh, biblically to the exclusion of everything else. All of the other boxes and categories that man puts their fellow man uh, into. And he did so, he tells us, in order that he might set his focus upon the work God had called him uh, to do in the world. And again, to reach people with the gospel, to reach people with the love of God, the truth of God, the power of God in terms of salvation. And Jesus, as he told those in Capernaum who were trying to uh, get a monopoly on Jesus' life and his time and his ministry, they were uh, pleading with him not to leave the city of Capernaum because of the great miracles and teaching that he was doing there and uh, wanted to keep him from leaving. And he declared to them, I must preach the gospel of God, uh, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And then Jesus tells these same disciples exactly the same thing in our passage here. In verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. And so how does all of this apply to us as Christians? First of all, we are to view people in the same way that Jesus did. And that is to look beyond all of the prejudices of uh, the culture and the world that we live in. And to see them as a human being that is loved by God and is in need of salvation. And to determine in the power of the Holy Spirit to look at people as someone who is loved by God 
however messy their life is, and as in need of a relationship with God that can revolutionize that alone, how a person views the world and views individual uh, people. And then the second thing that we learn here uh, 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 in terms of its application to us is to be busy about God's commission to us as Christians. Jesus wasn't the only one that had a commission from God. He'd been commissioned to come into the world and to uh, preach the gospel and provide a gospel to mankind. But as Christians, we have been given a commission as well. And it's called a great commission in Matthew chapter 28 in verse 19. Go there for and make disciples of all nations, except the Samaritans. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And you notice uh, 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 that we're told in verse 4 here in, in John chapter 4 uh, that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And why did he need to go through Samaria? In order to do what God the Father had called him to do. Not just in Jerusalem, but to do it in Samaria as well. And this interaction with a Samaritan woman, it is clearly, we are told, a divine appointment. A divine appointment Jesus would not have been able to keep if he had allowed himself to be influenced by the prejudice of the age. And the same thing is true of us as Christians. The degree to which we, to which uh, such prejudice marks our lives is the degree to which we have been conformed to the world, lost sight of our commission, lost sight of the spiritual fields that are white unto harvest, as Jesus declared, and we read in verse 35, and the decree, degree to which we will fail to fulfill the Great Commission. It is absolutely no accident that Jesus brought up uh, in verse 35 the fields already ripe for harvest in the context of national and racial and religious prejudice because it is the single great lesson that Jesus brought these disciples into Samaria to learn. And he was teaching them and us that whatever might be all of the other very significant dangers of prejudice in this world, dangers that I spoke about earlier, the greatest danger that that prejudice represents in the world by far is if it causes us as his disciples to take our eyes off of our great commission and if we begin to view people around us as, in, as the world does and as the flesh does as opposed to how God does and then we cease to share the gospel we cease to share God's offer of salvation with others as a result. And it is that which represents the single greatest danger of prejudice. And it is that that will become the greatest casualty 
of racism or classism or any other ism in the world today if we allow that to happen in our lives. And Jesus loves the whole world, and we cannot be like Him if we do not love them and have a concern for their salvation as well. And Jesus loves Samaritans, and those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit uh, will love them too. And whoever uh, they might be in any given nation or culture in the world. And to just ask God uh, this morning in our lives to give us a love for the whole world and and the desire to see every single person saved and to see every single individual as a human being who's loved by God supremely as a person who is loved by God and in need of salvation above everything else in, in their life. And there is so much pressure on right now and temptation to splinter us into tribes today. There are many who've been warning about this for years, but it still hasn't been uh, heated. And this influence to splinter in this way is absolutely demonic. And it's nothing like Christ. And it needs to be recognized for the demonic thing that it is, the unchristlike thing uh, that it is, and it is to be resisted by looking at human beings, not condoning uh, every action or every belief that they have. That's not what is happening in this scene. This woman is going to end up saved. But looking and saying, at their core, this is a person who is loved by God, their greatest need is for the gospel, and I am called to deliver that message to them. And I have to have you in your mind hit the pause uh, button uh, in, uh, related to this sermon and this topic, and, uh, and to absorb what we've looked at here today, but to understand there's an entire second half to this, and uh, fully six more points or observations from uh, the passage, but I won't have to set up the, pa- the passages as I did here today and spend the time uh, on that. that uh, and more points that are needed to round out what is happening here. So you may look at it, and if you walk away today and you say, well, I really think he's unbalanced related to what he said there. There, were th- there are nuances that he's missed. Just hold your horses, buckaroo. Uh, I just told you we stopped halfway and uh, we'll round it all out next week but time didn't allow me uh, you weren't going to give me another 45 minutes uh, here this morning to do that and I, and I wouldn't have done that uh, and so we'll, we'll pause for next time if you sit here this morning or wherever you might be and you're not yet a Christian God loves you and uh, and He loves you uh, just the way you are, but as the old saying goes, He loves you too much to leave you that way. And uh, that's just how it works. And, and so He loves you, but He can't ignore your sin and, and the judgment that your sin uh, uh, warrants by a righteous God. And so 
you need to receive the forgiveness of sins that's found in putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front here in the sanctuary, out by the screen in the courtyard, and we would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you have been created for. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray that You would uh, help us. We see the, the dynamics of uh, the hour and the age in which we live in the history of the United States. We see how classism, racism, lots of other isms are coming into play and, and the lack of, of cool heads uh, to uh, protect a fragmenting of a nation or a culture uh, as a result of these things and in fact stoking these kind of things. And so we turn to the calmest voice, the sanest voice, the, the most holy voice in the midst of this and anything in life. We turn to your voice and we're thankful that we see this in your Son in this passage today. And we pray that you would help us to back off from all of the conforming pressure of the world in this regard. And Lord, the own, even the, the tendencies of our own flesh and, and life history in this regard. And Lord, to view people the way that you do. And to view them as people you love and in need of your gospel. And that their salvation will bring the solution to all of the messiness in their life. And to whatever degree our hearts are out of alignment with that, and then to whatever degree our faithfulness to the Great Commission is, we pray that you would uh, correct that in our lives today under the beauty of our Savior's example. And where that is right and correct in our lives. We thank You for producing it within us and to use this time in Your Word to affirm uh, and, and encourage us in resisting all of the influences around us. And we pray for this work of Your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.